My name's Caitlin, and whether I like it or not, the cannabis industry launched my career. <laughs> and uh, I'm Zach, and uh, I took Dr. Dre's 2001 Chronic album literally, and I smoke weed every day. <laughs> and we are MNP. MNP, and this is manipulating the masses. Don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, or what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You, the people, have the power. So today we will be looking at the roller coaster journey of cannabis in the United States, some of the marketing tactics behind the efforts to make it legal and then illegal and then legal again, and how it was actually, Caitlin, one of the first examples of product placement in the United States and how it eventually blossomed into a billion dollar industry and as well as what the future holds for this budding industry. I got my two weed puns out of the way early. <laughs> I know. I, I couldn't help it. Oh, those were placed. I know. I couldn't help it. I needed to get it out of my system early. If it happens naturally in the rest of this, you know, I can't stop that. But I'll give you snap. Okay. Thank you. Thank uh-huh. you. I appreciate it. Let's get into it, huh? Um, before I actually like start with the story, I did want to talk to you a little bit about your own experience with marijuana because we met working at a cannabis magazine. Yes. Uh, and as I was writing this story, I was trying to remember kind of our experiences there. And it occurred to me, A, I, I don't think I've ever smoked or partaken <laughs> in cannabis with you. And B, I don't think I ever saw you. And w- it was very prevalent at the magazine. And uh-huh. I don't think I ever saw you like taking advantage uh, or partaking. So I guess like, what is your experience with marijuana, Caitlin? Honestly, I don't smoke, I don't imbibe, but that's not for lack of trying. Like I've, I try to smoke weed like on a monthly basis, thinking every time I do it, I'll enjoy it. Like I'll figure out what all the hype is about. You know, I have like a massive amount of anxiety as a business owner. And so I try to like eat edibles, I try to smoke and it actually like makes my anxiety worse. I am just one of those people that gets super paranoid on weed. So, you know, I thought I was cool smoking weed in college. And yeah, I keep trying to do it and it just isn't my drug. <laughs> just hit, keep hitting that brick wall, you know? I try, <laughs> I try so hard. I'm like, this time I'll feel good. And it just never happens. So I've just like thrown in the towel. My experience at Dope was like, basically I got the job, not because I wanted to be in the cannabis industry, but because it was an editorial publication and creative is my world. And so this was kind of my opportunity to get into the editorial world, to really direct photography, direct content. And that's kind of what I meant by it really launched my career because unfortunately it was in the cannabis space where I couldn't partake in like smoke circles because I just did not want to get super paranoid around our clients. But um, yeah, it, it definitely gave my creative side a, a boost. 
Yeah, I, I honestly think like looking back, you made the right decision because I would I would partake in those meetings and nothing would get done. Totally. We would just sit around and then I would be hearing about their HVAC systems and how they're growing the most. Po- like I know way too much about the production process now. Oh my God. Did you ever go to like a cannabis dinner where they infuse all the meals? I absolutely did. I had some great squash pumpkin pie, pumpkin soup squash pumpkin soup that was like infused it was really good i stayed away from that that was like my nightmare like being dosed like 100 milligrams of thc (laughs) a night sounds like my death so we would get invited to those as a state director and we would be encouraged to go to those dinners and i was like this is not happening for me i would weasel my way out of that but yeah that like haunts me those dinners And I don't think I made any deals. There was no like business being done at those. No way. No way. uh, I don't know how productive it was, you know, and honestly, looking back, it's a lot of it's a blur. Like, I don't really remember too many details because we would have like 9 a.m. joint meetings. We would like get into the office. We'd get a free joint, be like, all right, let's talk about this, blah, blah, blah. And we'd pretend like we're doing work. And I remember going on like site tours where we would tour the actual farm of cannabis. And I thought that was super cool, super interesting. It's like, it's really quite unique but then afterwards everyone would stand in a circle and get high off their own product and i was like well this really just devalues this whole thing like this just seems like a fucking i don't know group high school smoke session instead of like an actual hey we'd love to feature you in our magazine tell us the ins and outs of your business it's like nah let's not let's smoke instead when you would go buy weed in college and the dude would like make you smoke with him you'd be like man, I just bought this from you. Like, why do I got to waste it on you, bro? You're not that fun to hang out with. Totally. Like, yeah. Totally. And that's what it was like. Uh, yeah. Yes. It, it, I mean, it was a roller coaster, but I, that's why we chose this as kind of like our, our first episode is because you and I have a lot of experience in legalization. We've run a bunch of editorials about it. We've, we've run some magazines yeah. about it. Um, so I think it's a good yeah. uh, kind of starting point for us. So with with that, let's let's kind of get into yeah, the story, agreed. right? Yeah. So I the first thing I want to take a look at is how it became legal in the first place, and I'm talking the first place like the 1800s it, when it initially became legal in 1833. There was a doctor, Sir William Brooke O'Shaughnessy, um, from Edinburgh, Scotland. He was he was working in a hospital in Calcutta, India. And he began studying the effects of cannabis extracts on patients suffering from cholera. Do you know what cholera is? Um, something, a disease you would find on the Oregon Trail game. Yeah, I think you're right. I think <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, um, I think you're exactly right. <laughs> um, it's like a bacterial disease in your stomach. It causes severe pain, severe diarrhea, and it can be fatal. And I don't know, when I was researching this, like death by diarrhea like rang very true to me and i just like felt like that's the way i'm gonna go you know i can't i can't explain it but i was like that might be the way that i'm gonna go you know we'll put that on your tombstone yeah if i predicted it if i really do go that way and i predicted it it, it, absolutely it's going on my tombstone like that's that's a baller move like to predict your death (laughs) yeah 
especially so specific, that's a baller move. I'm okay with that. But just so we're clear, cholera is like not a disease anymore, correct? It's like polio, like nobody really has cholera. Uh, yeah, I don't have an answer for you. Um, I'm sure it's okay. prevalent. I, it's not, it's clearly not prevalent in like America or like, Western you know, culture. yeah, Western culture anymore. Um, but I can't say worldwide. I'm not exactly sure. Okay. Yeah, but it, it was it was very prevalent in India at the time. And that's why O'Shaughnessy, Dr. O'Shaughnessy was was looking at this and really observing how to treat these patients. So Dr. O'Shaughnessy, he was a rigorous note taker. He began observing that cholera patients who took cannabis extract um, reported back reduced symptoms in stomach pain and vomiting. Although, and this was the best part of his notes that I read, patients, quote, enter a cataleptic state which is like a trance, mm. they have enormous appetites and they suffer from the occasional giggle fit, mm. which, mm-hmm. which rings pretty true, right? Mm-hmm. So after publishing his research, cannabis became available through like the US and throughout Europe. Um, and it was being prescribed over the counter for stomach aches, migraines, inflammation, insomnia, pretty much the same things we see with the medical system now. And then I'm assuming you're not a smoker, you're not a you don't imbibe you never got your medical card right you never went through the process of like i called it the wink wink doctor appointment did you get your medical card? yeah yeah i did initially oh no way yeah it was basically it was like a 300 dollars meeting right like i paid 300 bucks went to this doctor and he like came in he was like what's hurting you wink wink and i was like i can't sleep wink wink and he's like well i got something for that wink 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 Yeah. And he like, he like did the whole routine of like checking me, but I, you know how people have like the one AirPod in, like that's what he did with his stethoscope, right? He just like had the one in. He was like, all right, all right, all right, good. You're good. Like knocked on your knee. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, (laughs) like that would do anything. Just like, yep, yep. You're good. Um, And then you had to pay like 150 bucks to get your card. So it was basically just a racket. Did you get your medical card in Oregon or in Michigan? In Michigan where, where I'm originally. Um, And that's why I kind of like let it fade because some states will be like, they'll respect other states' medical cards, other states won't. But at the end of the day, when it was actually like fully recreationally legal, I was like, I just want to buy it that way, you know, pay the taxes, support the system, right? Yeah. When it was medical only hell yeah, game the system. Give me my medical weed. Yeah. So uh, like throughout the 1800s, cannabis was widely prescribed by doctors available at the local pharmacy, whatever the 1800s equivalent of Walgreens is, you could just pop in there, pick it up. However, at the turn of the century, about the 1900s, the perception of cannabis in America quickly changed. In 1910, they had the Mexican Revolution, and that brought a lot of Mexican immigrants into the United States. And our MO in the US, whenever we get an influx of immigrants, they're met with harsh skepticism and outright racism. That was the same thing um, in the Mexican Revolution. So part of that backlash was the American public started to associate these Mexican immigrants with cannabis, which was like, you know, they know it was the group's 
choice of intoxication at the time. So there was a strong association between the two and officials in Texas. I read this memo that they released back in the 1900 or early 1900. They went so far as to claim marijuana creates a quote, lust for blood, <laughs> which is, which is interesting, right? So you can see that kind of just outright racism, right? Uh, so it was being prescribed. It quickly changed. And then by 1931, there was 29 states had passed laws just outright making cannabis illegal. So it's kind of the opposite of where we're at now. In 1930s, like states were starting to rapidly make it illegal. And now we see today that states are rapidly, rapidly turn, overturning those. Just to be clear, Americans were using cannabis and then the Mexican Revolution came in and Mexican Mexicans started to immigrate to America. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, no, this is a Mexican drug. We have to outlaw it. So that's how it went. Yes. That was like the beginning of it. Right. As is with much of American history, it all starts with a little bit of racism, doesn't it? Yeah, that sounds like us. Yeah. That's our M.O. That's our M.O. So that brings us up to the 1930s. And. Caitlin, the 1930s is when everything starts going to shit. You know, our first kind of character in this story emerges, Harry J. Anslinger. I'm going to call him Harry J. moving forward because I think that's what he would have (laughs) wanted. R.I.P. Harry J. And I think Anslinger, his last name, like, is too close to Asslicker for my maturity level. Like, I will be tempted to just do that. So we're just going to call him Harry J. He was the first commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which on its surface seems like a party, right? Like when I read Federal Bureau of Narcotics, I was like, yeah, sign me up. Like, that sounds fun. Um, But in actuality, it's the precursor to the DEA. God. Yeah. So Harry J., he served under five presidents as the commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He served under Hoover, Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy. He was the commissioner for 32 years, like an unprecedented amount of time. And then after that 32 years, he was actually the representative to the United Nations Narcotics Commission. So Harry J., overall, real fun to have at parties. So at the beginning, like the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and Harry J wasn't really interested in marijuana, but it shifted. And this is important around 1933, because alcohol prohibition was lifted in 1933. So their bureau started to shift to marijuana, most likely out of fear of losing funding and becoming irrelevant. So Harry J became obsessed with marijuana. Uh, rooting it out, taking this this scourge out of our society. And it was motivated by government funding, really. But he did it, and this is where I'll kind of give Harry J some credit, is he did it in a kind of ingenious move. This is where he launched one of the first instances of product placement, or what we call now product integration, in a new medium. And Caitlin, do you know, can you guess what that medium is in the 30s? Radio? Oh, I think radio was around a little bit. It was the talking picture shows. Oh, God. I would never <laughs> have guessed that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Talking picture shows. It was shows. the talking picture shows, baby. Yeah. So he started to incorporate marijuana into movies. They, the Bureau would go to Hollywood writers. This new, Hollywood was pretty new. So they would go to these Hollywood writers and producers and studios and encourage them to incorporate marijuana in their movies as a negative scourge, uh-huh. something in a very bad bad light. So it was kind of the first instance of product placement 
in movies, but instead of selling it, really trying to get people to be afraid of it. Uh-huh. So I'll give you some examples of these movies. I watched a couple. They're hilarious. Uh, the first one, the first one that really came out was a Western called Notch Number One, in which a cowboy goes into a murderous rage after smoking marijuana. Oh, the lust for blood makes full makes a full recovery. Yes, it does. Yeah, okay. My favorite quote from the movie, um, one character goes to the main cowboy and asks him about this new kind of cigarette. And he goes, quote, it's marijuana weed, a devilish narcotic. And if you smoke it, you go bug house, loco, and want to raise hell in general. I appreciated the use of loco in there. Again, taking in that subtle Mexican racism, you know, we're, ah, we're tying in that string, right? Classic, classic racism. The other one that I couldn't make it through because uh, it was so bad was a romantic crime flick called Jewel Robbery, in which a renowned jewel thief uses marijuana to dupe his victims into giving away their precious jewelry. So he would have them smoke weed and then they would just like give them their jewelry because they're under the influence of marijuana. I need to look into this drug. Yeah, yeah. Take it to the pawn shop afterwards, get people to smoke weed. Uh Um, But probably, and there's many examples of this. There was a ton of movies coming out throughout the 30s that really portrayed marijuana in a bad light. Um, But the most famous of these product placement anti-marijuana films is Reefer Madness. Have you ever seen Reefer Madness? Never seen it. I have heard of it. Yeah. I've seen posters. I know the posters were actually pretty iconic. Um, like I think it's pinup women. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're actually pretty sexy. I love yeah. them. I think I had one for a little while too. Let me save you the hour. I watched it this week. Let me save you the hour. Uh, it's basically like outright PSA. So at the beginning of the movie, they have like this long, like star Wars scrolling script. That's basically yeah. like, you know, even though the story's fictitious, it's based on thorough research and it's like marijuana will cause uncontrollable laughing fits. And then it will cause, you know, uncontrollable murderous emotions. And then it says at the end, in most cases, it causes uh, incurable insanity. Oh, geez. Yeah, their research was real, real well put together. And then it it basically fear mongers at the end, just being like, your children are, are open to the scourge. You need to stop it. And then the opening scenes, like this guy giving an uh, announcement at this parent-teacher conference being like, marijuana is a scourge. It mentions the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. So it's basically a PSA. And then it gets into the story and the stories, these kids smoke weed and people die, basically. So not only was it a product placement, he really constructed the entire dialogue, the entire theme of the movie around marijuana. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just like a Coca-Cola can shows up. Kendall Jenner's holding a Coca-Cola can and everything's great again. Yes. <laughs> it's a whole movie. It's a whole movie about it. And it beats you over the head with it. And that was kind of, you kind of like led into my next question is back in this time, this is so new product integration, product placement. They really like, it was outright, especially at the beginning. This is a real life scenario, even though it's a fictitious story, like they are beating you over the head that this is like product integration. Marijuana is incorporated in this story for a specific reason. I was going to ask you, since you're like the creative and I know you've worked some like product integration and product placement campaigns, I was I was going to ask you, like, how effective do you think that is nowadays? They do it a little more subtly, but how yeah. effective do you really think that is? 
Oh my God. It's hard to say. I'm definitely by no means the expert, but just from like a consumer perspective, like when I see people using a lot of British crime shows use like Microsoft tablets and it's very obvious, not that I'm persuaded to go buy a Microsoft tablet. I'm always very rooted in my MacBooks. I'll never change probably. And if I switch it up, it's not going to be because I watched someone use a Microsoft tablet on a British crime show. So I wouldn't say I'm the expert by any means, but from a consumer's perspective, I don't think they're effective. I think it's very interesting to notice, mm. like you kind of give yourself a pat on the back when you notice that the characters are drinking Takati's and they're not making a point to hide the labels. You're like, okay, Takati paid for that, mm-hmm. but it would never make me want to go drink a Takati. Do you think that's just us noticing that though? Cause we're in advertising. I think it is. Yeah. It's us in marketing that notice it, but um, I don't have anyone else to compare it to. I don't know if other people are picking up on this. And the, well, the note that I brought in kind of to follow that up is it, it has kind of transitioned from just seeing the labels in movies to influencers, right? Like they have products in their posts, right? Totally. Um, but we all honestly see that dying out a little bit too. Like how effective, totally. how effective do you think influencer pushing products? How effective do you think that is nowadays? Totally. We've done some influencer marketing and I just want to like throw in the towel with that. I think everybody wants to be an influencer. So, you know, and you can buy followers. So really consumers are noticing that you're not credible anymore because we don't know where your followers are coming from. And everybody's very in tune with that. Like nobody's an idiot anymore. <laughs> but, you know, at the the next wave of influencers are kind of like you nobody's to be honest. It's like everyone everyone is fashionable. Everyone has a is into fitness. Everyone has these niches. No, I completely agree with you. And I think we've just become numb to it, right? And that's why I thought this story was interesting because this is kind of the first instance of it and it was a huge success, but it has been, it has been kind of incorporated so many ways by brands and now influencers. I think you're right. Everybody tries to be an influencer. People are in tune with that and they're going to go source something that's more sustainable, more ethical or whatever it Mm -hmm. is. Mm Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, that first product placement being fucking marijuana, everybody, like nobody was in tune with that yet. I'm sure that had a massive impact on the masses. Mm-hmm. Hey, full circle. Um, it's like when they say the title of the movie in the movie, it's like when they say, and you're like, hey, that's the title of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm sure it had a massive impact. And now, like you said, we're just, we're numb to it. Like, I don't trust anything anybody says anymore. I'm going to make my decisions based off of the information I source myself. Mm-hmm. Although sometimes the Instagram ads get you, right? Like, I, I, oh, I hate those. You <laughs> say as we run a bunch of them for our clients. But that's different than influencer. Yeah. That's different yeah, than influencer marketing. Totally different. Fair enough. Um, yeah. So, like I said, the, this Bureau of Narcotics product integration, huge success. So, Reefer Madness is released in 1936, and then it's directly tied to Congress passing this Marijuana Tax Act in 1937, just a year later. So it it had a huge effect on public perception to the point that we passed a law 
a year later. Now, the law didn't like outlaw cannabis specifically, right? It wasn't like, yeah, this is illegal. It was basically a tax act and it just imposed such heavy taxes on hemp and cannabis production that it made the business essentially impossible to be profitable, right? So it was kind of like a back end way to do that. And then um, shortly after that went into effect, Denver police arrested Moses Baca and Samuel Caldwell for selling marijuana without paying the tax. Baca was mm. sentenced to 18 months. Caldwell was sentenced to four years in prison. And these are the first federal charges for marijuana. And, and while it was structured as like a tax evasion crime, it was basically it morphed into a criminal prosecution. Can I ask, uh, are these men white or are they black? I couldn't get a picture of them. And it didn't mention okay. in the, it didn't mention in any of the research that I did. I, I wonder, I just wonder like when we made the shift from, it was clearly like this white call. Now we're back to white collar. So it's really interesting, but the like kind of American white collar drug and then it shifted to being kind of like, I don't know, what it, what would you, urban mm -hmm. or minority. Mm -hmm. And then all of the penalizations came down on the minorities. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe it kind of started that way from the beginning. Um, Harry J, you know, while he did this product integration campaign, they also had public PSA campaigns. That was basically a wink and a nod to, hey, you know, he'd go after jazz musicians he would basically say uh, bad people and kind of a wink to the white suburban people like, hey, black people use this. We're not talking about. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, there was just, I okay. mean, pretty, pretty outright racism in his initial campaign being like, you know, black people use this jazz musicians is kind of the code yeah. word at the time. Um, black yep. people use okay. this drug. You should be scared. Your kids are going to use it. And, you know, um, so I, okay. racism so straight from the get go, straight from the, I mean, from the Mexican revolution into jazz musicians yep. into these arrests. Yep. And then I think it really, what you're getting at, you know, and I think we'll talk about it a little later is, you know, Clinton yep. and his war on drugs just incarcerated massive amounts of black males, even though marijuana use was, 50-50 at the time between black and white population. God, it's it's so fucked up. And I think I'm jumping ahead, but like now it's a completely saturated white market in the sense that like, guess who's profiting off of fucking marijuana right now? It's white people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do have that prompt a little because I do think it's a big issue. You and I yeah. talked about a lot that, you know, black, black yeah. men, especially were the victims of this war yep. against marijuana and it's white men that are profiting from the legalization. Um, yeah. And there needs yeah. to be some social equity with these states legalizing. Yeah. Um, but we'll dive into that, we'll dive into that. So uh, like I said, the, the marijuana tax law was basically it kind of morphed into a criminal prosecution law, even though it was a tax evasion case until um, 1969, Timothy Leary, uh, do you know who Timothy Leary is? It sounds so familiar, but I don't know if I heard it from you because we've been talking about this podcast <laughs> or if I heard it elsewhere. Yeah, he <laughs> is. I don't think you heard it from me. He is uh, kind of the pioneer of LSD, the tune in, tune out. Oh, okay. Um, genius. We might even do a podcast of him later. Uh, fascinating story. So Timothy Leary, he was arrested for marijuana possession in 1969, took his case all the way to the Supreme Court, and the, the Marijuana Tax Act 
Act was ruled unconstitutional because basically you had to apply for these like tax stamps to possess and sell marijuana. But they it violated the Fifth Amendment, because if you apply for these tax credits for marijuana, you're basically incriminating yourself saying, I want marijuana. I want to possess and have marijuana. So it was like this this catch-22 situation. Yeah, so 1969, that's ruled unconstitutional, and we did the most American thing possible. The next year, 1970, Congress passed the Controlled Substances Act, which labeled cannabis as a Schedule I drug alongside methamphetamines, heroin, and that is where it lives today um, as a Schedule I drug. Yes. Can you explain the like schedule one is that just mean it's the most most lethal and dangerous yeah uh kind of um the most lethal it also stay it's basically saying there is no medical value to it there's no value to researching it there's no value to basically any kind of like you can't get approval to research the effects of marijuana you can't get any like lab testing of marijuana um at the federal level Right now they allow that state levels and that's why more research is coming out. But that was a big issue when we legalized too, because they're just, people would make all these medical claims, but really it was done back in the 1800s, right? We couldn't research marijuana for so long. We couldn't really do lab tests and really get the effects, the medical benefits of marijuana. So it was kind of all anecdotal at the beginning. But now, now that states have legalized, they're allowing testing, they're doing a little bit of research. But fun fact, the only federal approved marijuana uh, production facility is in Mississippi, I believe, Ole Miss, the campus of uh, Ole Miss. No way, who would have thought? Right, all of these other marijuana farms coming up are technically federally illegal. While the states allow it, the feds, it's it's an illegal production. Do you have any, yeah, I kind of opened it up. Do you have any thoughts, anything that popped out to you? Um, that's kind of where we're at today, right? Why, why cannabis is federally illegal? No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it makes sense, right? I think we can talk a little bit about like where we're at. Like, I guess my experience with the cannabis industry really speaks to like who's profiting off of it right now. Mm, So I walk into you and I walk into an editorial publication run by four white men who had some money to begin with. So they took their money from their previous what successes and, and wanted to build um, a magazine themselves. Why? Because they wanted to open a pot shop mm-hmm. and they couldn't advertise anywhere. So they're like, hey, we'll just do it ourselves. If that's not the American dream, I don't know what is, but it was only given to these four white men. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. I agree. Because they already had money in the game. They already had money. Yeah. So then, I mean, my experience after that was I went to another startup cannabis company where uh <laughs> investors were Microsoft investors. They had no business in the cannabis industry whatsoever. This was not a culture where we sat around and smoked weed at 420, which literally happened in the magazine world. You know, this was not that culture. <laughs> uh, it was a corporate environment. Yeah. And I think my pitch to people was always like, yeah, you know, some really smart people are coming into the cannabis space. It's no longer like the stoner era. And that's kind of what we were told 
in our positions to tell people it's like, oh, we're really moving away from this stoner vibe and we're really trying to destigmatize cannabis. But the reality was like, we're just giving a platform for more white people to make money off of this. And so, you know, hearing the history of cannabis, it goes from India, then, uh, you know, the Mexican Revolution, and then we're throwing black people in jail. And then now we're the white man is profiting off of it. So good job, America. Like we've really come full circle. In <laughs> we absolutely have. And, you know, I totally agree with you. I would always say when I was working at the because I, I worked at a few cannabis uh, places after uh, working at the publication, the magazine, too. Um, and I would always say there was just this weird mix of opportunists. And I think you had that where they don't know anything yes. about cannabis. Um, they just, yes. they heard, read stories and heard there's a windfall of cash to be made. So they would come in and then yes. there was this kind of dichotomy of people who were successful in the black market trying to come into the regular yes. market, but uh, you know, restrictions and regulations would always hold them up because they're not, they're typically, if you're going to make an a, a enterprise in the full black market, you're not really concerned with re regulations and restrictions. You don't, you're not that personality, right? Yeah. You don't really know how to file an LLC. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you don't really care about, you know, lab testing and making sure like you, no. you're just trying to make some no. money. Um, so yeah, I do see it maturing and that's kind of what I get into, um, kind of taking a look at what we're at now. Uh, it all began in 1996, uh, when California legalized the medical use of cannabis, which was a very close vote. I think it was like 55% to 45%. Stigma was still very much around for cannabis. So that passed medically. And then there was a few states that started to pass medical use cannabis laws. And then in 2012, your state of Washington and Colorado became the first states to legalize recreational use. And again, this kind of triggered this waterfall of states legalizing recreational marijuana. And now at, at this point, at this recording, Connecticut legalized about two weeks ago. So now we have 18 states that have legalized recreational use, 10 states that are medical use only, uh, 12 states that have decriminalized possession up to a certain amount, and only 10 states is it outright illegal to um, have produced cannabis. So the shift in what, 20 years has been massive. And today about 45% of Americans, so just under half of Americans live in a state where cannabis is fully legalized. So about half of us live in a state where you can go to a dispensary and just buy it over the counter. I think what's mind blowing for me right now is the fact that it did start with this reefer madness. That was the first like anti-marijuana advertisement to go out and how quickly that took place and how quickly 29 states criminalized it, right? That's what you mentioned, mm -hmm. 29 states, and how slow it's been to bounce back from that one tiny, tiny era of, I'm just going to call it reefer madness. Mm -hmm. The reefer madness era. I like that. Yeah. The reefer madness era. Like it, it, it happened so quickly right? Mm -hmm. And then it's taken what that was in the 30s, correct? Yep. So, you know, it's 70 plus 20, we're at 90, or we're almost at a century. Did I do that math right? Yeah, a no, you're century? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 30s is nine years away. For the masses, for people to come around and be like, oh, this drug isn't that bad. There were no tests. There was everything 
that was run in an advertising campaign was propaganda. It was just like, hey, we think you're going to have a lust for blood. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, okay. They looked at each other and said, yeah, we're going to have a lust for blood and we don't want to be murderers. And now a century later, there's still 10 states that have that mentality, I guess not people, but like the government has that mentality. That's what's kind of mind blowing to me is it, it didn't start with science. It started with fucking advertising. Whoa. Right. Exactly. Um, and you know, there was like, there was like, you remember those PSAs as a kid throughout the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties. I remember the one where the girl just was like flat on the couch. Do you remember? Like she just deflated. (laughs) Oh my God. I totally remember. Yeah. Yeah. They had the one where the dog was like talking, you know what I'm saying? So, um, which is part of the propaganda from the thirties. That was part of it. They said marijuana causes these like hallucinations, which, you know, if you want hallucination, marijuana is not your drug of choice. I have some better recommendations for right. you. Um, <laughs> so, totally. yeah, I, I think it was just it is it's stigmatized and it's how advertising can get us to feel a way about a product without before we even try the product before we experience right. it ourselves. And that's really the right. power of it. Right. So uh, looking at where we are now, just kind of taking a look at the industry. This is where I kind of want to wrap up our conversation is now you're right. It was illegal in thirties, almost a century later. It's a $19.7 billion industry with a B billion. And I think the reasons now states are legalizing it, not because they feel bad about making it illegal, because they are making some money some guap. State of Colorado in 2020, $363 million in tax revenue just from cannabis. Washington, $614 million in just cannabis tax revenue. And California last year crossed the billion dollar mark in tax revenue just from cannabis. So I think these governments are just seeing dollar signs, right? They're like, this is a new revenue stream for us. It is a lucrative revenue stream for us. Let's legalize it because we can make some money. And really, we're just scratching the surface, right? Like $19.7 billion is a huge amount of money. In comparison, alcohol is a $252 billion industry. Wow. So only half of the people are living in a state where it's legalized. There's still a ton of room to grow. And that's why, again, we see these opportunists, these people being like, oh, I need to start a cannabis business because there's so much money to be made. They're not necessarily wrong, but there is a Mm -hmm. way to do it. And I just have some things that you and I've alluded to this. We've spent a lot of time in this industry. I wanted to ask you, you're the branding savant. You're kind of like the visual person uh, within our company. So with these new cannabis companies, what, what are some of like common mistakes that you see these these weed companies do as far as branding goes? I think we're seeing some money being spent in branding finally, but it was 2012 when we first started to see recreational weed on the market. I think Colorado was the first to actually like put some stores up. Washington took forever, dragged its feet to actually get it in place. Mm -hmm. And it was garbage branding. How so? Like, yeah, what do you mean by garbage branding? Like, we always laugh about like, hey, your nephew can't 
run your social media. Let us let the professionals run it. Hey, your nephew can't design your logo. So, you know, we were seeing logos built in paint <laughs> or built in, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, that was really popular. And now we're seeing actual like creative agencies popping up that are specifically catered to leveling up your brand. So I think there is another mistake that I see. And this is actually more kind of legal, but people brand it. They try, they think that they're clever by comparing it to something that's already on the market, mm. i.e. candy specifically. Yeah, Gorilla Glue. You know, that's a direct brand. Gorilla Glue? Yeah. What? Yeah, that's like a strain. That's a that's a popular strain of cannabis. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and it's, yeah. it's directly from the brand, <laughs> Gorilla Glue, right? No, you're right. You're right. Totally. So you're, you're kind of ripping off things that are already, because you're trying to make that association, right? You're trying to compare it to something that is already on the market that people can make, build those associations with. But one thing that we saw was people producing candy and then calling it like a Fruit Loop, so kids were like, hey, this is Fruit Loops, and then eating the candy. And then Lord knows what that led to. So we saw that a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a huge issue. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. And, and I think legislation really cracked down on that definitely in Washington, but I still see it. People still think they're clever by like producing candy called Reese's Pieces or Reese, and they'll make some sort of pun off, weed pun from it. That was my biggest issue. I yeah. hated the puns. Like we know you're a cannabis yeah, company. You, I, you, you just stop using puns in your brand name. Like, ah, uh, like you, you don't see the alcohol companies. Budweiser is like the only one that's like, you know, use hops, right? Like it, it, you yeah. don't need to say what you're making it. I don't know. It just bothers. We get yeah. it. We get it. You produce weed. And I thought you would hit on this because it's bothered me. And you're way more like a color palette person of the brand than I am. Like the amount of green that you see in branding and on the shelves is ridiculous. Like you need to stand and out. And marijuana leaves. Yeah, like pot leaves. Like you, Again, ugh, we, get we get it. We get it, man. We get it. Like you can... You can approach branding and cannabis in an elevated way yes. to, to make it a product, not just like, oh, you're eating weed. It's not a novelty, right? Yeah. You, if you treat it like a novelty, it'll stay a novelty. And I think you can take notes from the alcohol industry, right? Like the alcohol industry really paved the way for the weed industry because obviously you go back to prohibition and then they had to come from their own, you know, speed bumps or whatever. And now you see these really elevated uh, branding and elevated products. And so weed should really follow in, in its tracks. I totally agree. Yeah. So and I, the, the other thing, I have two more things I wanted to quickly talk about. Um, you know, uh, I think you and I talk a lot about, I kind of alluded to the fact that, yes, states are legalizing this, but it's still federally illegal, right? There was a few memos mm -hmm. that the federal government came out with that was like, yeah, we won't interfere, but they haven't changed the law, right? So it's still illegal at a federal level. And while the, it's allowing for production of, of cannabis in each of these states, it's really hindering their ability to advertise because their only options are really, you know, local publications, billboards, right? Like you see all yeah. these billboards popping up, but the big, the big gets the Googles, the Facebooks, you know, like these, these big yeah. digital advertising opportunities, Instagram. Instagram are all still restricting 
the ability for these companies to truly advertise and truly develop their marketing tactics because of the federal, it's federally illegal. So that's a big issue that I see and I kind of want Biden to correct, but I know he won't because he's 74. He's got other things to do. Um, he's got other messes to clean up. Um, so yeah, and the last kind of thing I want to talk about, where do you see, we've been in this, it's been, you know, 10 years-ish, we've been in it for a while. Where do you see the cannabis industry going? What's the next step for the cannabis industry in the next 10 years? Do you see any trends happening um, that you think are going to blow up? That's a really good question. And I was kind of going to throw that back at you because I am pretty disconnected from the cannabis industry. Now that I don't work directly for one of these companies, I'm not as passionate about it. We mentioned that like, I don't smoke. I, well, I try, I try <laughs> very hard, but uh, I don't imbibe. So I don't have that same like fiery passion as if I were working for one of these. So I'm really disconnected from it and I don't necessarily care. <laughs> Fair enough. I have to be honest. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I so I have what, an opinion. Like, how do you, yeah, I yeah. have an opinion. Um, I would always say, you know, I had a lot of people approach me about like, hey, do you want to get into the cannabis, start a dispensary? And I always said no, because it's basically a liquor store model right now, right? You go in, mm -hmm. you get your product and you leave. I think the next mm -hmm. step, and we I saw an article, I think last week about this in Nevada, the next step is cannabis lounges essentially like a bar yeah. for cannabis. You yeah, can Amsterdam. go, yeah, you can go, you can purchase the products, you can get a table, you can consume there. That is where the money's gonna be in this industry. That is when it's gonna really take off because you don't have to go home and consume it. You are literally hanging out, you're around other people. So cannabis lounges, cannabis consumption lounges, I think are gonna blow up here in the uh, next 10 years. So are there like legislation that is there legislation that needs to pass in order to get those popping up? Nobody has access to that right no, now. Basically, all the legalization laws that have passed thus far have the stipulation like, yes, you can sell it, but you can't consume it in public. You can't consume it. You can only consume it like on your property. That's that's what most of them say. Um, so Nevada is probably going to be the first one because it's such a tourist based state, right? Like they make all their money on tourism and you can't, it was, we wrote about this in Oregon when we were working at the magazine, you're basically incriminating people. If you say, if people come visit Portland and they buy cannabis, but they're staying in a hotel, you can't smoke in the hotel. You can't smoke in your car. You can't smoke at the park. You can't, you can't partake right. anywhere. You're basically incriminating. And you can't bring it across state lines. So you're basically <laughs> incriminating them, right? Like it's an entrapment yeah. law. So I yeah. think that is going to be kind of the next push of legalization is to give people like consumption lounges. Yeah. And then it's going to be like the fifties where everybody's just in a bar, like smoking away, you know? So I thought that Colorado had passed something. Do you know anything about that? That was a while yeah, ago. Yeah, they might have passed something, um, but I think it's going to take a while to implement. I think there's a lot of yeah. stipulations to walk through, you know, because you still need to restrict the amount that people can buy because, you, you know, you've seen people just hammered at a bar, falling out of the bar, right? Mm -hmm. I think they're going to really yep. try to walk that line and be like, hey, you can only buy a certain amount in these cannabis lounges. So there's a lot of just nitty gritty details that they would have to get through but yeah they might have passed it i didn't see it i just saw an article that and i've been talking about cannabis lounges for a while with people in the industry and i think 
Nevada just rolled out plans to open them up. So how far we've come yeah. from reefer madness to cannabis lounges, man, like how far we've come. Hey guys, thanks for sticking it out with us. We'd love to hear your feedback, both good and bad. Again, we can take the bad reviews. We want to hear them. Leave us a review and let us know what you thought.